Well, we've been in a series in the life of Abraham, a man of faith. We've seen ups, we've seen downs, we've seen struggles, we've seen successes, we've seen these moments of faith, we've seen these moments that kind of been, been uh, not so good in his life, in his life of Sarah. And honestly, the more I read the story, the more I realize sometimes it's my perspective that needs changing. You know that so many times, the circumstances we go through, the issues that we are facing, that we typically see them from a particular point of view, a particular perspective. And that every so often, God needs to kind of shift us over and give us a new perspective. I mean, this is in the world, right? Uh, you've seen this classic example of a, of a, what do we want to call it, a perspective change? Can you see in the, in the picture that's about to come up, do you see the... An older woman, or do you see a younger woman? Do you see both? You got to almost train your mind to see both. Uh, I, 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 sometimes I can only see the younger woman, and then sometimes I immediately go to the older woman. I can only see the older woman. Um, so the, the the sort of you have to kind of key on on the one part. If, if there's one part that's either the chin of the younger woman, um, whose face is smaller, um, it's the and she's looking kind of off in the distance, looking. We see kind of the back of side of her head, or it's her, the nose of the older woman. And and so I don't. We need to change. Okay, maybe this one's easier. Okay, some of you guys, I can't see it. I'm stuck. I can't. Okay, let's try this one. See, see if you can see this one. Oh, yeah. There's a duck and there's a rabbit. Okay, did that didn't you right? Okay. Sometimes we need our perspective changed. Okay, this was fun, but let, let, let's think about God again. Okay, okay, come back, come back. I can't see the rabbit. Okay, it's okay, it's okay. It's not on the exam. It'll be fine. We need our perspectives changed. We need somebody to kind of turn the paper. We need someone to kind of help us look at something differently. And we come to the scene in Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham where we need our perspective changed. Because when I mentioned the word and the name Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know anything about the Bible story or you even sort of have this general Christian background, what do you think of when you hear the word Sodom and Gomorrah? You're typically thinking judgment. You're typically thinking heaviness. You typically think of, oh my goodness, fire coming down from heaven, destroying cities. You think of this judgment of God, and rightly so, because it happens in the story. But today, I want us to get a perspective change. I want us to take a look at this story and see the mercy of God. Beginning in Genesis chapter 8, here's what it's, Genesis 18, verse 6, it says this, when the men, these angelic beings who had come to visit Abraham, they got up to leave. We saw these men last week. They re reiterated the promise that one year from now, Abraham would finally receive the child of promise. Well, these men get up to leave today, and we see this, and it says they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. Now, you already know the rest of the story. You already know there's, there's a judgment. You already know it's coming, and God does too. God, God already knows what needs to happen. God already knows his intentions. God already knows what's going to happen. But you see, we skip over this part because all of a sudden we realize that in God's plan, we see grace. Why? Because he's going to talk to Abraham about this. Look at verse 18. God explains why he wants to stop and talk to Abraham. 
It says Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Those words echo God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. You know, when we first were introduced to this man, when we were first introduced to this character, God tells him, Abraham, arise, leave the land of your family, go to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will prosper you. I will make your, your, your children like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. I am going to bless the entire earth through you. And Bible scholars see this, and so do I, quite frankly, as a promise that Jesus would be this descendant of Abraham, that God would ultimately bless the entire world through Christ, that Abraham's descendants, his lineage, it was part of God's overarching story to bring salvation and transformation to the world. God echoes this here in Genesis 18 saying, I need to talk to Abraham. Because in him, I'm going to be making known in history my plan of grace, my plan of salvation. Wouldn't it have been nice when the uh, basketball goal got broken if God had let us know that ultimately that young man would be coming to Jesus? <laughs> Wouldn't that ultimately have been kind of like, oh boy, this is frustrating today. Of course it was frustrating. Of course all of these things are frustrating. But to be if we could just see it. God knows that we are going to be reading the stories of Abraham, that we are going to be looking at it, and that we are going to learn from these things that even in the difficult situations, even in the things where God is correcting us, even in the things that are judgment, he's showing his mercy. So it goes on in verse 19 to say this, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And so the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. You see what's going on. God's saying, look, Abraham is not just about Abraham. It's about his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren and his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great King David's and Solomon's and his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great I think it's 14 generations, right, from Abraham to David and from David to the Messiah. I mean, th th there were these things that Matthew points out that this is all one lineage. This is all one story that God is using Abraham to instruct children and grandchildren for generations. And obviously, he's using him today to instruct us because God has always been about teaching us about what is right and what is good. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It makes this point. God's stories instruct us. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. The Apostle Paul realizes that not only his generation, but even generations beyond would look back at Abraham, would look back at Moses, would look back at these stories and realize God's work continues. God's story of salvation and mercy and love continue. Well, what does God say to Abraham? How does this conversation go? Well, let's look back in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, 
and their sin is grievous, that I will go down and I will see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. This is a little bit anthropomorphic, right? This is a little bit kind of putting God as if God isn't everywhere and doesn't know everything. God knows everything. He knew exactly what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew exactly what was going on, that the outcry was right and the outcry was just. But he speaks to Abraham saying, Abraham, I'm going. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in their midst. I'm sending my agents. I, 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 I am doing this because I will know. I have the full story. I have the full perspective. I will know what's going on. So the first thing that this story informs us about is that God is watching. God knows. It instructs us that God is not just distant. Do you remember that song called In a Distance? It was real popular, I don't know, right at the end of high school. In fact, I remember that my high school choir was going to sing this song, and Vicky and I were <clears throat> in the music class uh, together. You get, to take in, you get to take electives. You might as well take electives with your girlfriend. That's what I thought. So we were in the music class. We didn't realize that that meant we had to be in the musical together. That was not fun. At the end of the year, they wanted us to be in the choir together to sing this song at the end of the year. I, 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 I peaced out. I did not. She did it too. We didn't want to sing the song. But it was in a distance. God is watching us from a distance. From a distance, it looks good, even though up close it looks bad. I can't stand that song. That song is absolutely wrong. God is close. He's near. Go ahead and flip to the next slide. The one thing we need to learn is that God is watching, that he is close. Um, that God sees what's happening in Mariupol. God sees what's happening in the Ukraine. God sees the deaths and the injustice. God sees what's wrong. He is working in their midst, and God is there. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to see it serve, uh, sows to see, please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Destruction will come. Judgment is there. There are penalties for what we do. God is watching. Now, when we hear passages like this, often our sort of perspective can get very, very warped. We can get into a very wrong place. We can believe that when we talk about God is watching, that it's like a giant whack-a-mole kind of thing. The God's up there, like, just waiting for you to mess up. And it's like, oh, 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 there she goes, pow. Oh, 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 oh yep, yeah, she messed up, pow. And that God is watching as if to just bring some kind of, like, quick and, and sudden. That is not how God is watching. That is not how God is watching. We are not the little moles popping up, and every time we sin, he wants to pop us on the head. That's not it. I do think that God is watching as a parent, watching to make sure we're protected. Like a little child going down that slide that might be a little too risky and like, I want to do it. But when the dad is there, yeah, because God is watching. We can step out in faith as a church. We can step out in obedience to him because God is there watching us for our good. Or, or maybe I do think we need to see God as, well, I don't know, that doctor or nutritionist or dentist or whatever who is saying, <clears throat> 
you know, uh, your diet of sugar is probably not okay. We need to make some adjustments here. There are other food groups besides sugar and fat and cholesterol. These are not the four main food groups, right? We, we need to add some other things. We need the doctor who is giving us good advice. God is for our good and for our health. He is watching over, watching out, giving us corrective. God is watching us like the virus protection things in our computers, watching for malicious malware or things that would destroy or corrupt or disable us, those addictions that so easily come. God is watching like the, well, I don't know if you had a dog like this. Mine was real small. He really thought he was big, but he was pretty small. I don't know how much protection he was providing, but in the picture you see up there, the dog watching over the child to say, no, when there is evil and corruption, yeah, God does know. Now, does that mean it's immediate, his, his response? No, but God is watching. He is involved. Verse 22 the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Wait, what? These, these angelic beings, these ones who were with Abraham, these representatives of God, had now left. But somehow Abraham knows he is still in God's presence and that God's presence is still with him. And Abraham approached him, meaning God. He, he knows God is right there. And this is, this is Old Testament. This is before we hear about Jesus and the access we have to God through the grace. Abraham feels this confidence and says, God, I don't know if it's my turn to speak, but will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you really go and destroy this entire city, wiping out everybody, the good and the bad. How could that be, the righteous and the unrighteous? And of course, that's our question today. We look at stories like this and we're like, God, would you really destroy the entirety of that city? That seems so harsh. Well, aren't there some good people? Don't some people deserve your grace? I'm sure there's some bad ones, but isn't it just a few bad apples? Wouldn't the bulk of the society be okay? God, why would you do this horrific thing and destroy Sodom? Would you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's as if Abraham is teaching us because he has the same question we have today. He goes on to say, what? Okay, well, let's make a deal maybe, God. What? In verse 24, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Would you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous? Well, before we go too far, I want you to realize this teaches us something. God is approachable. Now, this is mercy right here. This is grace right here. We don't have the same standing as God. I'm sorry. I, I mean, you just don't get to go, well, you know, uh, tennis today, God, you kind of available? I don't know. I've been working on my swing, you know, my serve. God is in the highest heavens. God has created the whole universe. We are dust. We are, and, and yet, Abraham can say to God, God, should we go this direction? 
We see it in Habakkuk. We see it throughout the, uh, in Amos. We see it as the prophets question God and say, God, I, I, I don't want to talk to you about your power. It's awesome. But I would speak with you about your justice. Job says, God, if I could just talk to my Redeemer, if I could just talk to the God on high, I would plead my case with him. And God shows up and answers Job. Throughout the scripture, we see this truth that our God is approachable. Our God created us to have a relationship with us. Our God loves us. Our God answers questions. He's not afraid of the questions. He's approachable. And you know, we've got something to learn from that. A couple things. We need to approach God with our questions, with our concerns, with our prayers, with our needs. God is accessible. God is approachable. But can I make it a second point? We need to be approachable too. There's none of us that are too important or too high or too righteous. We need to be approachable to our children, to our grandchildren, to co-workers, to people who might be in the world's terms our subordinates. We, there are no subordinates. We have to have, like God, an open-door policy. We need to have a, be approachable uh, to people. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us approach God's throne of grace, his throne of grace with confidence. It's grace because of Jesus. We have forgiveness. We have a status as children, but it's grace because we don't deserve to be there in the first place. God is higher than all things, and yet he welcomes us in. It's grace that we can even be in his presence. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God has an open door to us. God welcomes us in. God is not high and far away and transcendent only, but he is imminent. He is here. He is always with us, and we always have access to his throne. Do you ever feel like you just can't go before the Lord? It's a lie. The lie of Satan. Jesus has made the way. His throne of grace is always accessible to you and to everybody else. Well, let's go on in our story. <clears throat> Abraham doesn't just stop with, Lord, what if there's 50 people? Because look at God's answer or the rest of the story. Verse 25. Far be it from you, God, Abraham continues, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, God. Will not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? God, aren't you fair? God, aren't you just? And the Lord replies, well, verse 26, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That sounds pretty good then. But Abraham pushes the envelope a little bit. Verse 27, Abraham speaks up again and says, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you still destroy the city for the lack of five people? Okay, it almost becomes a little game here at this point, right? And God says, okay, fine. If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Verse 29. Once again, he spoke up. What, what about 40? God, what if 40 are found there? 40 righteous people. And God says, okay, for the sake of 40, I will not destroy it. 
Have you ever worked with, 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 with like the really small children, you know what I'm talking about, the one-year-olds, the, the six-month-olds, the seven, eight-month-olds? I'm not a big, you know, you know, I like little kids, but what I've me mistaken, often messed up on is when a child like drops something, you know, a Cheerio, a little sippy cup, and then I pick it up. You know what's happening, right, Kay? You know what's coming next, right? Oh, we turned this into a game, right? Now the sippy cup goes back to the floor. And, and you know, and it, it, this is what it feels like to me. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, God, for 50, would you go 45? How about 40? What about 35? What about? And all of a sudden, we get into this little game where, where Abraham kind of seems to keep saying, God, what about five less? What about five less? What about five less? And then in verse 32, we sort of see the culmination. It says, then he said, may the Lord not be angry with me just once more. What if 10 can be found? Now, <clears throat> I, I get why he's saying, Lord, don't be angry. Because I think if, you, if I would have been God, said, Abraham, just ask what you want. If you want it to be 10, let's make it 10. Let's not go all the way down. But he says, what if we get just 10 and God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Lesson number three that we've got to take away from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of destruction, the story of judgment, is that God is extremely merciful. That our God is merciful. Micah chapter 7, I love this passage. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You delight to show mercy. When you show mercy, you're happy. When you're giving forgiveness to the repentant, when you're giving forgiveness to those who turn back to you, when you're giving forgiveness, you're in, you're, in, you're in your zone. You're in your happy place. You are like thrilled to show mercy. The world needs to know that God is not up there waiting to be like, I'm so angry, I want to just pour out my wrath upon you. God is anxious. He is encouraged. Ezekiel. God says, do, do I delight in the death of the wicked? Would I not rather that the wicked would turn and find life? God wants us to come to him. God wants the world to come to him. He's not waiting, going, saying, well, i got to pour out my wrath on somebody today because, no, our God delights to show mercy. He is watching because justice needs to be served. He's watching because he needs to protect the innocent. He's watching, but he delights to show mercy. Verse 32, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had speak, finished speaking with Abraham, Abraham was satisfied. He understood. He returned home. And we learn this truth, that God is just. God is just. He is merciful, but he is just. You see, the rest of the story is this. Those angelic beings do go down to the city. They do go down to investigate uh, what was going on in Sodom. And Abraham's nephew Lot meets these men in the, in the town square who are just planning to spend the night under a tree or something in the town square. They'll just find a little place where there's maybe a little, you know, an eve on an awning or something, a little overhang, and we'll just, we'll just, we'll just sleep here. And Lot was like, no, 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 no. This is Sodom. You, you can't just stay in the city streets. You need to come to my house. Come to my house right now. You need to come to my house. And as they go to the house, it says, when evening came, men, young men, 
and old men from the entire city came, banged on the door, and said, bring those strangers out because they're new to the city and we want to have sexual relations with them. Not consensual. We want to wait. You mean that everybody who came to that town was abused? Yes. Because the men, young and old, from every part of the city participated in this. This wasn't like, a, this had become the culture. In a cultural world where hospitality and protection was expected, they had turned their place into a, a trap. A trap for the traveler. A trap to rob, to steal, to kill. To, the outcry against Sodom was so great, so their sin so grievous, and it had permeated so much every single person in the town. Not even ten righteous could be found. Well, the truth of the matter is there is no one righteous, not every, even one. So the angelic beings ended up just striking with blindness, getting Lot and his family out of town. God showed mercy even in that part of the story. At the end of Genesis chapter 19, it says, So when God destroyed the cities on the plain, he remembered Abraham. He brought out Lot from that catastrophe and overthrew the cities where Lot lived. We need to realize, as the scripture says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that ultimately God is just. He pays trouble on those who trouble you. He gives relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen. God's justice will finally be culminated when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Yes, we will be rescued. Yes, those who trust in him will be redeemed. Yes, but he will also punish those who don't know God and don't obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. God is merciful, but God ultimately is also just. He delights to show mercy. He desires for all to come to him. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that whoever would come to him would not perish but have eternal life. But God is also just. He will ultimately punish the sins. He will ultimately punish those who that don't know him who have never come to receive his mercy and forgiveness. So often we react to that justice. We're uncomfortable with that justice. We're uncomfortable with ultimately the wrath of the Lord. But do you realize that without the justice, we have no security? John, in 1 John chapter 1, says this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, if we are saying the same things, God, you don't want this in my life. I don't want this in my life. We have his forgiveness. Your son is my only sacrifice. Your son, Jesus, died for my sins. You are my only hope. If we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and he is just. You see, Jesus paid for those sins. To make us pay for them again would be unjust. My security is in the fact that God is just. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to be like, well, Mike, Jesus paid for a lot of your sins, but you know what? I'm tired of this. You've sinned once too often. No, he's just. Jesus paid for all of my sins. Put them on the cross. It's over. It's done. I need his justice, and I need his mercy. Somehow in the cross, Jesus was able to do both. The Lord Jesus 
On the night he was betrayed, the night he was going to the cross, the night he was going to stand trial before the cross, that, that, that very same night, it says he took bread and he broke it and he said, do this. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Today, we celebrate God's mercy, his action of love on the cross, and his justice in taking our sins away. I'm going to invite you to take a moment to prepare your heart. We're going to take a moment to take the Lord's Supper. If you didn't grab one, there's some at the front, and our deacons can even bring some around. If you need to slip up your hands, our, our ushers would bring some around to you. But we're going to do this in remembrance of the Lord. Take a moment to prepare your heart. And remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave. Remember the fact that his body was broken on the tree. Remember that his life was given for your sins to be taken away.